Good morning, Gresham Bible Church. You know, it's, <clears throat> it is not hard to find reasons for discouragement. And I, I hope that if you are <clears throat> discouraged, that you brought it with you this morning. That you lay it at the foot of the cross. We're going to look... Um, we're going to pause in Colossians. We're going to look at Philippians this morning. <clears throat> and what I want to do is I want to read the whole letter. All right? This is the epistle of joy. It's, it's so tender. It's so encouraging. It's so joy-filled. This letter is for you. Whatever you're going through, if you're discouraged, if you're anxious, if you're sad, if you're angry, if you're, if you're indifferent, the joy and the command to be joyful is the antidote that you need. So, please, open your Bible to Philippians. If you are already in Colossians, one page to the left. Open up to Philippians. And what I want to do is I want your help, Okay? The epistle of joy. Every time we get to the word joy, I want you to shout it out with me. Okay? Every time we get to the verb form of joy, rejoice, I want you to shout it out with me. Okay? Do we need a practice run? Go to chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. You'll get it. He says it many times. We have a lot of time to practice. Okay. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. There we go. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Chapter two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling, or questioning, 
that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Finally, my brothers and sisters, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, 
God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Chapter four, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. I missed that one, nice job. My joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thank you for humoring me. Chapter three is where Paul really gets down to business. He has a major warning for this church and he has a major hope-filled proclamation that the righteousness that God requires comes from God himself through faith in Jesus Christ. You can try to perform your way to God and we will call that religion. Trusting in yourself and in your accomplishments. Or you can rest on the finished work of King Jesus. He'll take your sin, you get his righteousness. You get to stand right before God. Here's our outline. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul shows you what true Christianity looks like. Verses 4 through 6, he gives you his resume, and you see what religion looks like, what striving on your own to get to God looks like. And then in verses 7 to 11, you get to see what righteousness looks like, how you really get to God. Let's take a moment and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active and sharp. And so would you come and cut us with it? And would you help us to rejoice? I thank you for your help. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, chapter 3, verse 1. Finally! And then if you noticed, 44 more verses after Paul says finally. Now, <clears throat> I grew up in church, so that's not terribly surprising to me. Right? There was a, <clears throat> a young boy sitting in a service. He heard the preacher say, finally! So he leans over to his dad and says, what does he mean when he says that? And his dad says, absolutely nothing. <laughs> what Paul means here is, furthermore, he's transitioning and he's getting to the point. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And as you noticed, nine times in Philippians, Paul rejoices or he encourages us to rejoice. He wants us to feel and to show great joy and delight. That's rejoice, the verb form of joy. Feel or show great joy and delight. And it's the pattern that Paul sets for us. In chapter one, verse 18, when Christ is proclaimed, Paul rejoices. In chapter two, verse 17, when Paul considers the nearness of his death, he is glad and he rejoices. He calls the Philippians, and by extension, us, to be glad and to rejoice with him. Chapter two, verse 18. Paul plans on sending Epaphroditus to Philippi, whom God recently healed, and the Philippians will rejoice when they see him. Chapter two, verse 28. This time in chapter three is a little different. Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is the source of our joy. He is our delight because our joy is in and from God, it is indestructible, it is inexhaustible, 
Jesus himself tells us that no one will take your joy from you. John 16. The fountain of joy will never dry up. The Lord is our source. He will never leave you or forsake you. He has overcome death, hell, and the grave. He meets your every need. He strengthens you. He helps you. He holds you up with his victorious right hand. He holds all things together. Rejoice in him. God is here and at work all around you, sustaining you, keeping you. Rejoice in him. Charles Spurgeon preached on this passage and he commented on this verse. What a happy religion is ours in which it is a duty to be happy. It's your duty to be happy. Paul is commanding your emotions, which means if you don't feel like rejoicing, if you don't feel joyful, check your source. Where are you getting your joy? Where are you looking for your joy? In your circumstances? In your friends? In the plans you made on the weekend? Check your source because God is the inexhaustible source of all our joy. Paul goes on in verse one, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. It's okay for the preacher to repeat himself. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This message is safe, he says, meaning it's certain and it's steady and it's immovable and it will not trip you up but there are those who will try to trip you up. And that's in verse two. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul's describing here one specific group of people. Each term there gives us a clue to who he's talking about. Beware of the dogs, he says. Don't have in your mind cute little domesticated princess dogs, right? Don't think of my Chandler, the most aggressively friendly dog you're ever going to meet. This is mangy, flea-ridden, vicious. These are scavengers, right? They live outside. They roam around in packs. They eat your garbage. So look out for the dogs. And then he gives us another clue. Look out for the dogs who are evildoers. So they, they labor and they toil in godlessness. They work at it. They do evil. So beware of the evil working dogs, and then the last one, who mutilate the flesh. That last clue there reveals that the specific group that Paul has in mind is a group called the Judaizers. They took Paul's gospel of grace, salvation by faith, and they added the Jewish custom of circumcision. Right, They came into the church at Philippi. It's not enough for you to believe. You must be circumcised. Circumcision has always been an outward sign of an inward reality. God chose Abraham, and to seal the deal, God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, an outward sign of what God did to Abraham's heart. God cut away his unbelief and left his heart soft toward him. Deuteronomy 30 Verse six says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring 
so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcision was the outward sign of the inward reality of what God did in the believer's heart. The Judaizers, the evil doing dogs, they missed that crucial point. They treated circumcision as the act that gained them the favor with the Lord. But when you add to the gospel, you miss the gospel. Those who count on circumcision for salvation miss the whole point of circumcision. And they end up, according to Paul, not circumcised, but castrated, mutilated. If you have nothing to show but circumcision of the flesh, you are not really circumcised, you are only mutilated. You counted on the sign, but you missed what the sign was pointing to. Your mind and your life need to be devoted to God. You need to be part of the real circumcision, which we see in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So circumcision is important. Your heart must be circumcised. But how do we know God has done that for us? How do we know that God has come and circumcised our hearts? How do we know that we're a Christian? Paul gives you here three ways to know that you're really circumcised. If you're really a Christian, you worship by the Spirit of God. A Christian's heart attitude, a Christian's longing is for God. This isn't merely worship like singing praises to God or attending a worship service. This is a lifestyle of sacrificial service and love for God. It's much more about your attitude than your actions. And number two, we glory in Christ Jesus. We joyfully boast in Christ Jesus. We exult in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord, right? That's what he's been saying over and over. A Christian does not glory in or boast about anything in themselves or any work that they've done. A Christian glories in and boasts about Christ and the work he has done through his life, death, and resurrection. And thirdly, we put no confidence in the flesh. A Christian humbly acknowledges that apart from Christ, she can do nothing. A Christian humbly counts on the finished work of Christ on the cross for her salvation. She does not try to add to it or earn it. She does not trust in her flesh. She trusts in Christ. True Christians, the real circumcision, are those who have a heart of worship by the Spirit. They glory and they boast and they rejoice in Christ Jesus and they put no confidence in the flesh. They humbly acknowledge that they are accepted solely on the basis of Christ's finished work. Verse four, Paul says that I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. So those Judaizers who were so into circumcision and law keeping, they had all their confidence in the flesh. Paul meets them right there and he shows them he has practiced what he's preaching here. You can't work your way to God. You can't act religiously enough to earn God's favor. So to prove this, Paul lays out his resume. He shows, the, he shows the Philippians where he came from and the great transaction that changed his life. 
Paul can say, put no confidence in the flesh because he's gone both ways. He once lived with all his confidence in the flesh. Paul is a major one-upper. Anything you can do, Judaizers, I can do better. It reminds me of the story of an old pastor from Boston. He had a new rabbi friend and they liked to you know, rib each other. So one day the Boston pastor says, one of my ancestors signed the Declaration of Independence. And the rabbi kind of, oh, is it that nice? One of my ancestors signed the Ten Commandments. So one-upping, right? That's what Paul is going to do for the next few verses. Beginning in verse 5, Paul lays out his resume as the ultimate one-upper of these Judaizers. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So here's Paul's pedigree. His folks had him circumcised when he was eight days old in accordance with Jewish law. He wasn't like the proselytes, some of the Gentiles in the church at Philippi, came into the church later, so they're older, so if the Judaizers try to get them circumcised when they're 20, 30, Paul's not like that. He was born into the Jewish faith, circumcised at eight days old. He is of the people of Israel. He can trace his line back to the man, Israel himself. He's a member of God's chosen people. And he says his lineage runs through Benjamin, who was Israel's youngest and his favorite son, Benjamin was the tribe of the elite, Israel's first king, Paul's namesake. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem, the great holy city where God dwelt in his temple, was in Benjamin's territory. Benjamin was the elite tribe, and Paul can trace his ancestry back to Benjamin. And Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He grew up in Gentile town of Tarsus, but his parents kept the Hebrew language and traditions And he was not conformed to the pagan city that he grew up in. He maintained the Hebrew laws and customs. He was a a Hebrew Jew from birth. So those are his privileges he was born into. That's his pedigree. Let's look at his performance. What did he do about it? As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. So Paul was a Pharisee. These were the spiritual elite of Judaism. Their name, Pharisee, means the separated ones. So they separated themselves from everyday life in order to keep every detail of the law. Their religious system was pray the right prayers, give the right offerings, observe the right days and ceremonies, and they believed that that was how they were going to get to God. Keep his law perfectly. And Paul did that as a Pharisee. And then how zealous, meaning how how hot and fervent, how fanatical was Paul regarding the law and the God of Israel? So zealous that he was a persecutor of this new upstart church of the way. He loved his God and his God's law so much that he killed Christians in hopes of stopping the spread of the gospel. We see in Acts chapter eight, he was there when Stephen the first Christian martyr was stoned for his faith. That's how zealous he was. And then how self-righteous was he? Paul was blameless under the law, meaning there was no external demand of the law which he did not fulfill. When his fellow Pharisees looked at him, they could find no fault 
by human judgment, he was a model Jew keeping every letter of the law. If anyone could be saved by works, it was Paul. If righteousness could be attained through religion, Paul would have attained it. If anyone had reason for confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. He kept the Hebrew tradition. He kept the law. He persecuted the church. He was blameless under the law. For my accounting friends out there, Corey, Carrie, this is the great accounting passage in the Bible. Paul has a balance sheet. He has a profit column and he has a loss column. All those gains, he's, he's filled up his gain column. That's what I want to say. He has filled up his gain column. All the privileges he was born into, all the religious achievements he attained, they fill up that gain column. And it's, it's very impressive. And then Paul meets Jesus. Verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All that religion all that self-righteousness, all that gain in the profit column, Paul counts as loss. He meets Jesus and a transaction takes place. All those things Paul used to hope for, hope in for salvation, his heritage, his law keeping, his zeal for the Lord, they could not save him. He had to adjust his balance sheet. Those old gains are now losses. And now the gain column is filled with one word, Christ. For the sake of Christ, because of the fact of Christ, we have a new way of accounting because of Christ. What looks like gain to the world is loss. And he repeats himself in verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Self-righteousness is not how you get to God. Religion is not how you get to God. You don't perform to get to God. Jesus is how you get to God. Everything is loss because of Jesus. Everything, your background, your history, your religious attainments, your pedigree, your performance, all loss because, Paul says, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. There's nothing better or more important than knowing Christ Jesus. This isn't head knowledge about a certain subject. This isn't knowing about Christ Jesus. This is knowing Christ Jesus. This is heart knowledge. This is intimate knowledge. This is like a wife knows her husband. Paul knows Christ intimately. But if, if you notice, he didn't just say Christ using his title. He didn't even just say Christ Jesus using his title and his name. He said, Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is personal. This is intimate. He is mine. Everything else is lost. Christ is mine. Knowing Christ Jesus is all the gain in the world. Paul counts his history of self-righteousness and religion as loss. And then, more than that, as rubbish. Everything he used to hope in, trust in for salvation, is garbage. Rubbish. Why? 
what does he, why does he count it as rubbish? Well, if you look there at the text, that I may gain Christ, that I may win him, that I may profit him. Paul wants one thing in the whole world in his profit column. He wants Christ. So he counts all other things as rubbish. To gain Christ is more than gaining knowledge of him. It's making Christ your own. Well, how do you do that? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Let's keep reading. Let's look at verse 9. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I have counted and everything is lost that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul wants to be found in Christ, united in Christ. The only way you can be found in Christ is by not having a righteousness of your own. You must have no confidence in the flesh. Your righteousness must come through faith. Righteousness does not come through religion or through performance. You don't have right standing before God through earning it or meriting it or deserving it. Righteousness comes through faith. It comes from God through faith in Christ. And this is justification. This is God giving to you Christ's righteousness so that you can stand before the righteous God, righteous. We just sang it. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. This is justification. Paul has been justified. He has the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ But he doesn't stop there, and God doesn't stop there. Believer, God does not stop working in you after he justifies you. And that's verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We saw justification in verse 9. Verse 10 is about sanctification. Paul is setting himself apart for God. Justification is God's work in you to save you from hell and to bring you to himself. Sanctification is God's ongoing work in you to make you more like his son, to conform you to the image of his son. And for for Paul, all of this counting and gaining and loss and profit is so that he may know Christ and specifically the power of his resurrection. The power of that caused the heart that had been dead three days to beat again. The power that caused the lungs that had not drawn breath for three days to breathe again. The power that made life out of death. That's what Paul wants to know. He wants to know Christ intimately and know him in all his power. And he doesn't stop there, but I do. When I remember this verse, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection... Exclamation point. Let's go. No, it keeps going. Paul wants to know him and know his power and share his sufferings. He wants to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, like we looked at last week in Colossians 1. This is about fellowship. This is about a deep communion we believers have with Christ, especially when we suffer for him. And when we suffer, we have Christ 
to share it with. We do not suffer alone. He is here to comfort and help because he has already experienced the same suffering and infinitely more. So sanctification is knowing him personally, intimately. It's fellowship with him in and while suffering, and it's becoming like him in his death. What was Christ like in his death? Back in chapter 2, we see Christ is the supreme example of humility. He was God, and he took the form of a servant. Paul wants to live like that, empty of himself, empty of self-righteousness, And he's willing to die like that. Remember chapter one, to die is gain. To die is profit. In verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We had justification. We had sanctification. The third link in the golden chain, glorification. God saves you. He works in you to make you more like his son so that when your life is over, Or when Christ returns, whichever comes first, God will clothe you in splendor. He will render you glorious. He will invest you with dignity. He will resurrect your body from the dead. He will give you a glorious new body and you will live forever with him on the new earth. Glorification is the final redemption of our bodies when we'll see Jesus face to face. And it is certain, believer, Paul is so certain of God's power to finish his work in you that he states it as, it's as good as done. Look at the end of Romans 8, chapter 30. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The righteousness that comes to you from God through faith in Christ will conform you to Christ. And as you become more and more like Christ, you will attain Resurrection of the dead, the final glorified state. Righteousness is yours, brothers and sisters, through faith in Christ. So rejoice in the Lord because you have Christ. Fix your gaze on Christ. Know Christ. Repent of the achievements that you use to justify yourself before God. And rejoice in the Lord. Not in your circumstances, not in your feelings. Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for your word. And uh, most of all this time, thank you for your son who humbled himself to the point of death even death on the cross, and we thank you that he did not stay dead. God, help us to know his resurrection power. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Would you hold us close? And pray in Jesus' name, amen.